This really started with me picking up a challenge, I suppose, put down by Elon Musk, who at that time was promoting Hyperloop. And he was suggesting that in order to make Hyperloop cost-effective, that tunnelling needed to be reduced in cost very, very significantly. And he was suggesting it ought to be possible to make the cost of tunnelling 10 times less than, than it currently is. And that seemed to me like a challenge that ought to be responded to by by a professional organisation, by some subject matter experts. And so I'd suggested um, to the BTS that perhaps we should take this challenge seriously and have some answers for Elon Musk and some answers to the challenges that he put forward. Hello and welcome to the Tunnelling Podcast. I am John Young. And I'm Rian Owen. And in this episode, former BTS chairman Bill Gross gives us the answers to Elon Musk's tunnelling challenge. But before we do that, we should really explain more about what Hyperloop is. And to do that, we are going back in time. Not far, just two years ago to 2018, when our sister podcast Engineering Matters made an episode about Hyperloop. Hyperloop technology uses linear electric motors to drive magnetically levitating capsules or pods through very low air pressure or vacuum tubes. In theory, this lack of air resistance results in speeds of up to 700 miles an hour, cutting journey times from hours to minutes. London to Edinburgh, for example, would take around 40 minutes, approximately half the time it takes to fly. Further afield, companies such as Virgin Hyperloop One predict that the journey time between the east and west coasts of the US, New York to Los Angeles, an incredible 4,500 kilometres, would be just 4 hours 28 minutes. To date, US-based Virgin Hyperloop One is the only company to have successfully conducted full-scale tests on its 500-metre-long test tube in the Nevada desert. The good news so far is that in each test, the pod has moved faster. By December 2017, Hyperloop One proved that its carbon fibre pod and levitating chassis could reach speeds of 387 km per hour. But these speeds are limited by the length of track, with acceleration and deceleration requirements, meaning there's only around 300 metres at which the pod can run at speed. Under the same conditions, given another 2,000 metres of track, the team claimed that it would have reached the 1,100 km per hour speeds that are possible in theory, and this is now a priority to construct a longer testing track. Other companies are seeking to do this too. Hyperloop Transport Technologies is hot on the heels of Virgin Hyperloop One, with a test track under construction in Toulouse, France. So it's a particular exciting moment for us because we passed from a document that was a white paper that Elon suggested as a possible technology to actually implementing a real Hyperloop system. This is Bebop Gresta, chairman of Hyperloop TT, who together with company CEO Dirk Alborn, founded the company in November 2013. The team has ambitious plans to deliver a five-kilometre Hyperloop track in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. The paper that Bebop refers to is the famous Hyperloop Alpha study published by Elon Musk in August 2013. Perhaps the world's most famous engineer, Musk is the entrepreneur behind global disruptors such as Tesla and SpaceX. And although he invented the term Hyperloop, the idea of transportation through low-pressure tubes is not new, and one of the earliest designs for this is credited to an American engineer called Robert Hutchings Goddard. Goddard's better known for inventing the world's first liquid-fueled rockets, 
the first of which was launched in 1926. But long before this, in 1904, Goddard was studying physics at the Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Massachusetts. His assignment? To write a paper on the future of transport in the year 1950. His proposal was that passengers would be transported via magnetically levitating capsules sitting in steel vacuum tubes. The 200-mile journey between New York and Boston would take just 10 minutes, he said. His essay was published in the Scientific American, but the idea never really took off. And it wasn't until 1972 that Robert Salter of Rand Corporation produced a more detailed study into low-pressure transportation called the Very High Speed Transit System. Yet again, the world was not ready to move forward with such technology. And it took Elon's 2013 report and his forward-thinking decision to make the design open source to catalyse development. As Hyperloop companies sprang up and research began, it soon became apparent that the only really effective connections would be straight lines between cities. And in today's built-up world, Hyperloop would need to be built underground inside very long, very straight tunnels. And this, along with other plans for congestion-busting underground road tunnels, is where Elon Musk's challenge to the tunneling industry came from. I think we need to have at least a tenfold improvement in the cost per mile of tunneling. And Elon, at the 2017 Vancouver TED conference, said there were two key ways that this could be achieved. So the the first thing to do is to cut the tunnel tunnel diameter uh, by a factor of two or more. So so a single road lane tunnel, uh, according to regulations, has to be 26 feet, maybe 28 feet in diameter to allow for crashes and emergency vehicles, um, and sufficient ventilation uh, for uh, combustion engine cars. But if you, sh- if you shrink that diameter to what, what, what we're attempting, which is t- uh, 12 feet, which is plenty to get an electric skate through. This refers to Elon's subterranean road tunnel network in Los Angeles. The tunneling cost scales with the cross-sectional area. So that's roughly a half order of magnitude improvement right there. Then tunneling machines uh, currently tunnel for half the time, then they stop, and then the the rest of the time is putting in reinforcements for the tunnel wall. So if you, have, if you design the machine instead to do continuous tunneling and reinforcing, that'll give you a factor of two improvement. Combine that and it's a factor of eight. Uh, also, these machines are far from at being at their, their power or thermal limit. One of the big factors that Elon Musk was talking about was actually making the tunnels half the size for half the price. Well, we can do that already. The question is, what are you going to put into that tunnel that's half the size? I mean, I think he was talking about not using trains. That's fine, that's an advantage, but we can can bank that because if you make the tunnel half the size, it's going to be somewhere around half the price. So I'm looking at improving productivity and improving the cost of tunnels of of a similar diameter. And this is an important part for Bill Gross. He wanted the industry to respond to the technical part of Elon's challenge how to reduce costs in tunnelling itself. And Bill is very well qualified to take this challenge on. I'm a past chairman of the British Tunnelling Society, 2006 to 2008. I was for a number of years director of um, Arup's Geotechnical and Tunnelling Group, during which time I started Arup's tunnelling business. 
Arup is one of the UK's best-known design consultancies, and during his time there, Bill also spent five years working on planning and design of London's 2012 Olympic Park, before being seconded to the Treasury to work on something a bit different. On a project to look at the cost of infrastructure in the UK and compare that with the cost of infrastructure elsewhere in the world, and particularly in Western Europe, to see how and why we were, were more expensive than, than elsewhere and, and the underlying factors for that. In 2011, this resulted in new government construction strategy aimed at reducing costs in the industry by 20%. In 2014, Bill then retired from Arup, but he didn't stop working. Instead, he became an independent consultant. And I've worked on High Speed 2 for five years, Thames Tideway, which I'm currently working on, other tunnelling projects that I'm involved with in Los Angeles, uh, in Lima, in Peru um, and South Africa and one or two other places. Bill has also maintained his position on the British Tunnelling Society Committee since he was its chairman. And has plenty of other roles too. I've been a, a founder member of the all-party parliamentary group for infrastructure which is run jointly by the Institution of Civil Engineers and the British Tunnelling Society. I'm a member of the BTS Communications Committee. I've also been and am a founding member of another organisation called Think Deep UK which is all about encouraging people to be thinking about the best use of underground space as well as planning for things that are built on, on the surface. I'm also a member of the um, Institution of Civil Engineers Policy and External Affairs Committee, which is a group that, um, that reports to the trustee board of the Institution of Civil Engineers, giving strategic direction um, to them in terms of government relations and public affairs and recommendations to government. And we also advise on the Institution of Civil Engineers State of the Nation reports. It was the Institution of Civil Engineers that Bill approached to fund a research project into reducing the cost of tunnelling to meet the Hyperloop challenge. This was a different route to normal BTS projects undertaken by volunteer experts. Bill wanted a more rapid response and appointed a team of professional consultants to do this work. So we engaged London Bridge Associates in order for them to do some research into a little bit of research into Hyperloop and more research into the costs of tunnelling and the, the elements of the costs of tunnelling which contributed to, to the way that the costs built up. So, so my plan for the project was that we did some investigatory research at the outset. That then informed a workshop. We invited 40 people from the industry and from outside the industry, clients, contractors, consultants, external organisations, public sector bodies, all to come to this one day workshop, have that professionally facilitated and then use that workshop to, to sift what we thought was going to be the most productive actions to take in the future. As a starting point, this meant looking to the future. What would tunnelling look like in 50 years when Hyperloop might become a reality? It struck me that if you'd have asked the same question of Thomas Telford when he was uh, working on, on the Stanage Tunnel, you know, he would have said uh, perhaps his vision of the future was tunnelling 10 times quicker, 
not not killing anybody, not hurting anybody, making steady progress and not being stopped due to geological conditions. So you could imagine that there would be a lot of challenges that he was facing, which actually now we have overcome. What became clear is that there isn't a single massive step change that is likely to revolutionise the cost of tunnelling. The improvements are going to be incremental, just like Hyperloop. Hyperloop is decades away, I would say. How, however hard anybody tries, there are, there's going to be intermediate stages of, of rapid transport before we get to putting people into pods in near vacuum environments and firing them through a tube at 700 miles an hour. You know, we're, we're not going to go there in one jump, I don't think. So, so we've got some decades to, to respond to to the challenge there. I think we can all see that there are significant advantages if there is ever a publicly available Hyperloop system of having it in the ground because it solves a number of security issues and not least of which is the connectivity. If you're, if you're trying to build anything in highly populous areas, then people get in the way or the, or the new project gets in the way of people. So, so underground is, is, is the way to go. But what I've used it for really is to, is to try and think about the improvements that we should be making now in the tunnelling industry and getting on to making improvements, improving productivity. In working out where costs could be reduced, the study generated a model tunnel for costing in order to create some transparency around exactly where the costs come from. This was 100 kilometres long with a straight alignment and would consist of either two 4.5 metre internal diameter twin tunnels or a single 6.5 metre internal diameter bore. You can read all of the details in the paper which we will link to in the show notes. But what this model tunnel did was identify where costs were incurred. We've got supporting infrastructure 23%, materials which are mainly segments 17%, labour 17%, staff 15%, plant 13%, spoil disposal 12% and TBM supply 3%. So we can see from that that if we're, if we're, looking, if we're looking to save money then we're much better off focusing on the materials that go into make segments than we are focusing on TBM supply. This enabled the researchers to prioritise which cost savings would have the greatest impact. And there were a couple of really important breakthroughs that this group of 40 experts found would reduce the costs, including recycling spoil into the construction materials and making linings in a single pass. Producing a single pass continuous lining, so instead of a segmentally lined tunnel boring machine, advancing a bit and then constructing a segment while the, while the machine is not working and then advancing a bit more and then constructing another segment and keep jacking off in that fashion, piecemeal fashion, but to produce a, a single continuous process of boring the tunnel whilst forming the lining. One, one of the big challenges of Hyperloop type tunnels is they're going to be long and we need to find ways of building tunnels longer and longer without having intermediate shafts and clearly those two things using excavated material as, a, as the structure form part of the structure and produce the lining in a continuous fashion are obviously two things that would help with with building long tunnels fully automated continuous mining and lining was also identified as possible improvements along with extruded linings but there was another key area that most people, including Elon Musk, hadn't considered. 
and then looking at st producing standard specifications, standard contracts that people can use. There's always been a desire, I think, in the engineering profession to standardise those things. But but my feeling is that there's been there's a tendency more recently to move away from standard to bespoke, and I and I can see all the reasons why people do that. But I think pulling it back to standardisation would be another way uh, of improving productivity, and that was sort of generally shared. I think, in in the workshop. Bespoke contract terms are often about moving risk. For every non-standard clause inserted into a contract, contractors must spend time unpicking what this means. And then accounting for it in their tender prices. This can take a lot of time. And yet the window for replying to bids with the price is often not very long. This is also something that has become increasingly concerning to tunnellers in recent years. But it is also indicative of a bigger issue. To be innovative, the supply chain needs to be led by organisations that are prepared to take risks and to do things differently. If a client looks at the tunnelling industry as a, as a supplier of tunnels only and they tender the contracts, they will, they'll, they'll get today's technology, or in fact what they'll get is five years ago's technology, probably. What is needed, says Bill, is earlier engagement between the organisations procuring the major projects, industry and academia. If you start off looking at the concept of a project which isn't going to get on site for five years, you've got enough time to run PhDs into new materials before, before they get onto site. But for the major breakthroughs, such as reusing spoil as a structural material in the project, or new mechanised tunnelling that can create a single pass lining, procuring organisations will need to be prepared to allow their projects to become test beds for the new technology. It's people in the organisations. It usually boils down to a person who has to take, you know, sometimes quite an adventurous decision. In large public sector projects where organisations are put together specifically for that project and then will be disbanded afterwards, it's quite difficult to find people who are going to make that sort of risky decision and, 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 and you know, what's motivating them to, to take that decision. You can understand that, if, that, that it's more likely that, that perhaps London Underground, which is an organisation that's been around for 150 years plus, that they will have technical knowledge, they will be able to decide for themselves how much investment should go where, uh, and, and they do, and, uh, and that they invest, whereas the one-off projects find that dis sort of decision more difficult to make. So, And it's not just London Underground, I can't say that because we're in, we're in London at the moment, but uh, the Land Transport Authority in Singapore you know, MRT in Hong Kong are the sorts of organisations that have a continuing workload for, for tunnelling and tend to be the more innovative amongst the clients. Having a clear pipeline of work is something that can motivate clients and the supply chain alike. Another part of this report and Bill's paper looks at the potential tunnelling projects for the UK and overseas. It seemed to me like a good idea to answer uh, the rhetorical question, well, if you make tunnelling more, if you improve productivity and you lower the costs, which projects would become viable, which aren't actually projects at the moment? 
The infrastructure pipeline only contains projects which have been examined to an extent uh, seriously. And, uh, and the industry in a commercial environment tends to focus on projects which are currently being talked about because they're looking to win work on that project and, and so on. So, so this is supposed to be a list of projects which are, which are further out. These include connections between Gosport and the Isle of Wight. Six kilometres. A new Trans-Pennine tunnel. Eight kilometres. Cardiff to Avonmouth. 16 kilometres. And then longer connections from the UK and Scotland over to Ireland. Some of these projects are, are talked about and certainly the one that now is getting quite a lot of talk is the uh, connection between Northern Ireland and either England or Scotland. So, so some of them are being explored uh, in, a, in a sort of semi-formal way. Some are just being talked about by local pressure groups, local interested parties. Uh, as a consequence of the, of the work uh, and, and the paper, I spoke to somebody in Jersey who was quite interested in talking about a tunnelled connection between Jersey and uh, mainland France because it's, it's a, that's a shorter distance than many people commute into London. And if there was an underground railway line that connected the two, then then people from Jersey would be able to commute to work in France and vice versa. So, so there's lots of sort of ideas have come out of just the concept of of of, of what what would we do if it all became cheaper. So, what is the answer to Elon Musk's challenge? Can we make tunnelling ten times cheaper? As Bill says, the diameter reduction cost is one that can be banked. And the BTS study looks at the possible productivity and management improvements. So how much cheaper could we build tunnels? 30% by 2030. This is a figure that Bill has actually discussed with the Department for Transport. That may or may not be a correct number, but it's the sort of challenge that, that we think would be achievable. A 30% reduction in cost or a 30% improvement in speed in the next 10 years. That doesn't get us to Elon Musk's 10 times saving, but it, but it would get us quite a, lot of, quite a lot of the way there. Achieving this is going to take a lot of collaboration and the next steps for Bill and the BTS are to explore where further research can take place and call on all sectors of the industry from the public sector to academia to work together. But I, th I think the challenge is that all of these um, initiatives that we talked about, nobody said that the industry could do any of these things on their own. So there's always somebody else, some other organisation, some other uh, party that we need, we think, in order to make a step change of, uh, of the type that's required. So, so the industry will move forward, I think, in small steps, but this is an industry which, which works at relatively small margins in a highly controlled situation. So detailed specifications, competitively bid in most instances, and, and, and as I say, small margins. So it's unlikely that great step changes are going to be made with that sort of environment. Then you add in technical risk, health, safety, etc. risk, and, and we're going to be moving forward 
in small steps. They might be quite a lot of small steps. So we might be able to move forward, nudge forward reasonably quickly if, if, if lots of tunnels are being built. But I don't think we're going to make any big changes until we get engagement with public sector clients, for example, academia uh, as another example. So, so I think that's the challenge now is who's, who's, in, there, who's in it with us to, to make these changes? Where, who's, on, who's sitting on a burning platform? The Tunneling Podcast is a production of Reby Media. Produced this month by Bernadette Valentine and hosted by John Young and Rian Owen. Script supervision by Alex Conacher. Series supervision by Martin Nowak of the British Tunneling Society. And our executive producer is Rory Harris.